Hi, I'm Marbel, and welcome to another episode of the Director's Notes podcast and the second in our season of London Film Festival interviews. A film which left this year's Tribeca on a wave of plaudits, not least because this debut feature made history when 19-year-old filmmaker Philip Eumanns became the youngest and first African-American director to be awarded Best Narrative Feature at the festival. Burning Kane tells the story of an aging mother struggling between her religious convictions and the love of her alcoholic son. Arriving on Netflix today, I spoke to humans about the necessary mind splits when taking on multiple production roles on an independent feature, and why his natural affinity for handheld camera work was a welcome boon for the time and resource strapped production. And so we're back at the London Film Festival and it's my pleasure to be joined on the podcast today with director Philip Newman to talk about his fantastic debut feature, Burning Cane. Welcome to Director's Notes. Thank you, thank you, thank you for having me, man. We have a tradition around here and that's with the question, what is it that first brought you to filmmaking and directing? Because if I'm right, you started off by acting when you were pretty young? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I started in, you know, local productions that came to the city in New Orleans where I'm from and then from there I think I just got just sort of an inside look about the way that the director and the DP sort of function seeing their roles I think was a lot more interesting to me than some of the conversations I was having with the other actors that I was in collaboration with and I think I just was so much more enamored with the work that went on behind the camera because that's where a lot of the real creative control that I was interested in lied so that was was just clear to me from working on those sets that I wanted to work behind the camera and then from that point on I started making my own short films at a pretty rapid basis. I actually didn't submit any of my short films or at least follow through with any of my festival submissions with short films until I made Burning Cane, which was my feature, but before then I, I, I think I just wasn't quite satisfied with anything I had made really up to that point until Burning Cane, honestly. So yeah, talking about shorts, Burning Cane began as a short called The Glory. Yes, yeah. So it began as a short called The Glory when I was 16. I wrote it in December of my junior year. Then I brought it to my instructor named Isaac Webb at the New Orleans Center for Creative Arts. And when he read it, he liked the script and he felt like it could be expanded into a feature because of how grounded in character it was and how it felt like it could be shot without a, a ton of different resources, or at least it felt like it could be shot with the resources that I had available to me. You know, and it was also a limited number of locations, very character driven, you know, it didn't involve any extravagant set pieces or anything like that, so it felt like it could be done if I wanted to do it. You know, from that point on, I, I really, really wanted to do it, and so I became obsessed with, you know, rewrites, expanding the draft to that feature set, getting notes, getting feedback, all that kind of stuff. Ultimately, you know, just doing that prep time and just, I guess working more shifts in morning call X, Y, and Z, just leading up to the actual start date of the feature. How did um, you expand the world? Like, was it that the story expanded, or was it that the original short was maybe like a scene or a few scenes from what we see in the eventual mm. future? So the original short really takes place or revolves mostly around Daniel and Helen's story. So in the short we meet Helen and she's hunting ducks in the short actually and then Daniel comes in. It's clear they haven't seen each other in a, for a while so there's an estrangement to their relationship and really the short is just about Helen in those last throws trying to figure out why he's here, what he's done and trying to sort of come to terms with the man that she believes her son has become. Ultimately, when she confirms the man that she knows her son has become, she acts and takes that, which carried over into the feature, but that's really sort of the end of the feature, you know what I mean? And it's interesting because I felt like with the feature, I just wanted to expand the entire community of it all, which is also also what Wendell's role, I say, expanded it as well. 
because in the short the church was a part of it and the, there was a pastor a part of it but it was really more of a vessel for us to hear the word and the doctrine that Helen was intaking in comparison to how she was acting with Daniel but with the feature that same sort of mechanism was at play but it was also really more of an opportunity for me to show the pastor and the sort of mayoral status that the pastors have in these rigid Protestant communities in the rural south you know because there really is a certain authoritative quality and a certain almost like fatherly nature that pastors sort of hold in the Baptist church, at least in the South from, you know, my upbringing. Yeah, because this comes from your own experience, but then I'm curious about you wanting to find a balance of not wanting to demonize yeah. that community, the church community, but also I'm reading between the lines here, I think maybe seeing that there's problems there, it doesn't really speak to you, or maybe I think the way that I articulated to myself was like almost the church being like empty calories. Mm. Like I'd say, yeah, man, but it's important to not make it a black and white thing because you have to look at people who have been Especially with my family, I, I think I, it took me a while to recognize later on that the reason a lot of my questions weren't getting answered when I was a kid was that for a lot of my older family members who have been practicing you know, Christianity, have been a Baptist for their entire lives, it's very, very difficult to reckon with the idea that maybe what you've been following your whole life isn't real or isn't grounded in, I don't know, like in an objectively solid moral compass, you know? To say all those kind of things, I think I recognize that it's difficult for someone to reckon with the fact that they've been spending their whole lives dedicated to something like that, you know? And so once I realized and kind of recognized how difficult it really is for someone to grapple with that, I think I just started to unpack why people go to that in the first place. When you look at just growing up in the rural South, being a person of color in the rural South explicitly, there's a racial hierarchy that is still in force. And you, so you look at a lot of the, the sort of hardships that we go through in the rural South, hardships as black people in general. The church offers a sort of beacon of hope for people, though I personally no longer align with it. I can understand why people feel like they need a beacon of hope in general. I think having that understanding is important when you're trying to approach anything dualistically or with a humanizing perspective because if you go black and white on one side then it goes to demonizing then it goes to caricature you know and with religion that's a very very important thing especially if you're depicting religion with a sermon you know or with an entire church service going into caricature completely ruins the intention of it in the first place you know so it's just important to try to maintain respectful and not demonize what you're trying to depict honestly because you can't depict it honestly if you're already coming out of it with one side you know now, do I disagree with the doctrine of the church, and do I disagree with the ideological, you know, teachings? Yeah, I do. You know, I think there's a lot of antiquated values that are perpetuated within our community, specifically from the Baptist church. Do I think that there is a certain communal nature to the church that is valuable? Do I think that gospel music is beautiful? Do I think that a lot of the people who've shown me a lot of love in my life I've met through the church? All that's true, you know, but I've personally separated from it, but I don't. I don't antagonize anybody from it because my whole family is within that world, but I wanted to have a nuanced discussion about all of those things, at least touch on and speak on it with the film. This was something that you, you shot like mainly over the course of the summer. How yeah. difficult was that truncated timeline, especially as I know that originally you weren't planning to be your own cinematographer? Yeah. Well, my initial DP was going to be this guy named Jacob Johnson, who I had met when I was first day seeing this UCLA thesis film that was shooting in New Orleans. And so we became friends, and it was like whenever I wrote The Glory, 
and expanded it. And we moved into the feature with the title as The Glory too. You know, so when I finished the feature of The Glory, I immediately went to Jake because this was my best friend who I knew was a DP. So I was like, yo, Jake, do you want to shoot this? And he was like, yeah. And he read the script, and he was from the area that we were going to shoot in, so it felt like it was so one-to-one, -one. it felt like it would be perfect. But Jake had a family, he was expecting a baby, he had just gotten married, and he needed paying work, you know what I mean? The rest of the people in the crew were my age, Jake was much older than us, you know? And after we, it became clear that we wouldn't be able to pay him really anything close to industry standard rate, it became clear just in the realities of life that he wouldn't be able to do it. And so from that point on, you know, I moved into the DP role, but it wasn't with the intention of doing it. It was out of necessity. But I think looking back, it was a sort of a blessing in disguise. I can't really imagine the film through anybody else's eyes but my own. But that being said, it wasn't intentional from the first place. You know, it was it was out of necessity, but like I said, it was a blessing in disguise because, I mean, I had fun with it. But I think it's important to acknowledge the sort of mind split that comes from directing and DPing. You know, I was fortunate to have very, very smart, prepared actors, and we did enough preparation ahead of time so that when we came on set, I was able to sort of operate within that mind split in harmony because it can be difficult when you're focusing on the intention of a shot but also the technical aspects of the shot and also being mindful to performance and luckily like I said preparation I heard the seven P's and I'm happy I got this advice before I came in they said proper prior preparation prevents piss poor performance so and I think it allowed me to have that sort of flexibility with my actors to also be mindful of shot when I'm operating cameras well, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I think the mind split is something to acknowledge though, because I think it really depends on how comfortable you are with that mindset. For me, I felt comfortable with it because I felt like my producers had a handle on the logistical movements of set and my actors, we had done enough preparation conversations ahead of time that nothing that we came on set with felt like it was completely out of our sort of operation zone. And on top of that, it just, I don't know, it was fun because I like shooting my own stuff, so, yeah. Where did you pull, um, like, visual inspiration from for the style that you deployed um, in your cinematography? And also, given the fact that you knew that you'd be operating at a certain budget level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't say any direct inspiration because I didn't look at any other films or filmmakers and say, oh, I want to use that for Burning Cane. I can think about the filmmakers that inspire me that I think have like an incredible visual style, like whether it be PTA or Terrence Malick or Ben Zeitlin even, you know? I don't know. Or especially like Minbetti or something, you know what I mean? You can keep digging into that forever because all the filmmakers that I admire, I'm sure that they've influenced me directly, you know? But it's also difficult for me to say, okay, I used that filmmaker, I thought about this said style to bring forward to Burning Cane. You know, it wasn't really with that intention in mind, but with Burning Cane, I knew I wanted to feel almost sort of documentarian. And I like an active, kind of grimy camera. I like handheld, I like, I like it feeling a little claustrophobic, kind of visceral. And so I knew I wanted to approach Burning Cane that way. But it also worked, there's twofold. That is a style that I like to work with, but it also helps in terms of being able to keep the pace up of how much you need to get on an independent film shoot when you're as independent and grassroots as we were. You know what I mean? So it was a fortunate thing on two levels because one, like I said, that's how I like to shoot. I like to move with the scene. I like to have the preparation of knowing the things that I want in a scene beforehand, but also being able to put it on my shoulder and move around and go follow things that I want to get or maybe some off takes or, you know? Yeah. So I think there's a certain organic sort of fluidity that I love with 
shooting that active, but it also worked in the pacing that you needed to make a film with as little resource and as little time as we have. So it's twofold, I'd say. You mentioned um, Ben Zeitlin there, mm. who exec producer mm -hmm. on the film. How did he get involved and, I suppose, more specifically, the supporting role that he has, um, I suppose, birthed with Court 13? Yeah, so after production finished, I cut this like trailer together, sent it to what I thought was his Instagram, and it was, but I wasn't really sure because it just said Giants fan and then Court 13 under it, so I was like, that's Ben, I'm sure. Sent it to him responded to me, he was like, yo, this is amazing, then we met up for coffee, but it wasn't with the intention of him being my EP immediately. Like, when me and Ben first met, we were just friends, like, good friends, honestly. Like, Ben is one of the sweetest human beings alive, man. Like, so, when I met him, we were just, I don't know, hit it off as friends, and then I got his opinion, got his feedback on the film, and then he started working with me more, facilitating feedback sessions, helping me get this grant that gave me a cash award in addition to an editing space at Photochem and Second Line Stages, and then final color correction and my ultimately my final distributor deliverables through Photochem as well. So Ben operated as a sort of one, a guide and a mentor in post, also a facilitator in those feedback sessions and a facilitator with our uh, our grant operation and stuff like that. So I'd say he was just honestly an irreplaceable guide in that way. And I, I mean, I love Ben, so. Yeah. This is a film that I believe you found very much in the editing room. Mm. And so how much does the ultimate film differ from what you had laid out in your mind in the script right at the beginning of the process? Mm. Okay, so the film is different structurally in a few ways. One. In the script, it was literally a bisecting line where the film takes place, we're with Daniel and his son, and we don't see Daniel interact with his mother until halfway through the film. We don't even really see his mother much until halfway through the film. But that changed because I realized in post-production we need to be able to understand the dynamic between Daniel and his mother to have any investment in their growing conflict or in any of the escalating events within the film. Within the edit, I realized how much I loved that revolving three of Daniel, the pastor, and his mother. I just loved that sort of revolving three where we moved back in synchronicity with them, ultimately until the film unlocks at the end. You know, I think I found, one, my editing style in post-production with this film. Like I said, I wasn't satisfied with any of my work before Burning Cane, but with Burning Cane, I sat with it for over a year, you know, just grinding out in the edit and really realizing how much I like to see a lot of pre-lap and post-lap sound sort of bleed in, just in the stuff that I like, you know, and I think I just learned a lot about my personal editing process, about editing in general, you know, I think I learned a lot with the process of making Burning Cane and also with the structure and building the structure of Burning Cane. Because, like I said, it was so much more scene by scene, sort of catalyst driven before, where it's like, oh, this happened because that happened, and blah, 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 blah. But then it became much more of an amalgamation of moments, you know, and I liked that way more, and I didn't realize that until I was in the gutter with the edit, you know. So I did learn a lot about the structure that I wanted to move forward with for the film and the edit, for sure. What did you shoot on? Shot on a Blackmagic Ursa Mini 4.6K, mostly in RAW and ProRes HQ. And then I did all of the editing in Premiere and then did final color correction with the colorist from Photochem and DaVinci. Having created such a well-received 
feature film where you've taken up all the roles? Like, do you feel, or, or the main, yeah. Well, well, yeah, 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 yeah. All the roles, you acted in everything. All <laughs> <laughs> the um, heads of department roles. Is that a way of working that you want to continue um, going forward? That's such a good question, man. Yo, it's a huge question because I think I talked about the mind split. The mind split is something interesting, man, because with Burning Cane, it was a necessity. It is what it is. But I got to tell you, in addition to having great producers, obviously when you're a director in an independent role, you have to do a lot of your own producing too. So... Honestly, I'd say sometimes it can be exhausting. It's also exhilarating, you know, but I'm very, very interested to know what it would be like when I'm going to, I'm writing my next feature, you know. That's the Black Panther one. Black Panther film. one, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I'm going to direct that one. I'm not sure if I'm going to shoot it. I question whether or not, look, I'm, what I'm comfortable with so far is shooting my own stuff. That's what I've always done. So to not be doing that, it may be different, you know, but I question whether or not I'm holding myself back, you know. Would collaborating with a brilliant DP take it to a whole different level I could have never imagined? You know, I don't know. I think it's worth definitely really, really seriously thinking about it. Yeah. Would I love to shoot that one too? Hell yeah, because it's fun as hell. But would that be holding the greater work back? Does it service the film to have another mind in that role who may be more... I work on feeling with cinematography. I learned a lot of the technical basis of that through NOCA, through my art school. Mm -hmm. But that being said, there are definitely DPs out there with a whole different level of technical competency, you know what I mean? And to not bring that into the fold, would I be wrong? I don't know. You know, I'm still working on a lot of that myself. I know at the very least I'm going to write and direct, but I definitely want to edit it too, you know? So it's like, man, I don't know. And now I have producers on that next project as well, so it's like, and their role and their opinion is very valuable as well, so I'm going to seriously take their counsel and all those kind of things but ultimately I don't know I think I really have to decide how I want to move forward with that because I'm sure it would be fine if I wanted to shoot it as well but I'd have to acknowledge that the resources and the stakes at play for that next film are a lot greater than they were with Burning Kane you know so all that comes into play I don't really know but I would be obviously I think it would be fun to do it but I really don't know because I think there's so many factors that come into that you know yeah. Where should I um, point our audience so that we can keep an eye on your work as it, as it comes? Okay, so Burning Kane coming out on Netflix November 6th. And if you're in the U.S. listening to it, it's going to be released limited theatrical in the U.S. And if you're in the U.K., you can catch it on Netflix first thing November 6th. Outside of that, be on the lookout for a film I did with Solange Knowles' brand St. Huron called Nairobi, which is about a French-speaking African family in Harlem. And it's about the fashion that... Nairobi designs for her mother during this time. It's one of my favorite pieces I've made, so be on the lookout for that. Got a project coming out with John Batiste, uh, a documentary coming out with him, a short documentary about his time at the Village Vanguard in New York City, so be on the lookout for that. And then a dope music video coming out with this band out of South LA called Innerwave. They're so sick. Like. They are from South LA, they grind, uh, they practice pretty much like every single day in this shed that has like no AC. Dude, they're amazing. They're also touring and like really, really doing their thing. But I made this video for them that I'm really, really excited for people to see. And then I'm trying to think, there's other stuff, but those are the three major projects after Burning Cane that are gonna be coming out. And Dude, you've got that down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, those are, those, are, those are finished. So like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool, fantastic. But Thank you so much for talking to us Thank today you, and yeah, can't wait to see what's next from you. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me, man.
Thanks for joining us again. If you enjoyed the DM podcast, then please leave us a review and subscribe so you can catch all our new episodes as they're released. Next week, I'll be talking to Bulgarian filmmaker Svetla Totorkova about the destructive power of lies in her second feature, Sister. In the meantime, you should definitely visit directorsnotes.com to read our interview with Judas Collar writer-director Alison James, who explains how she created a remarkably heart-rending scripted live-action short in the Australian outback, starring a cast of camels. Speak to you soon. Thank you.